BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following is a presentation of the Speed Sport Podcast Network. Mike Wallace doesn't have all that much driving experience. For the last three or four years, he's put in his views in this business. Mike Wallace comes down to the line. He'll pick up the win. It's Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. The battle's for the lead. Mike Wallace gets by Jason Leffler. Mike Wallace comes off turn number four. A great move in that corner. He comes to the line and will win. From grassroots to the top of the racing world, hear the stories of NASCAR's biggest names and how they made it all the way. Who was Tony Stewart before he was Tony Stewart? I could barely make enough money to pay attention, let alone to try to survive. From the Speed Sport Podcast Studios, powered by My Race Pass, here are your hosts, Mike Wallace and Jeff Kent. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourselves in. Pull those belts tight. We'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. We're brought to you today by Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities and programs. Visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointment, or collision need. Today's guest, Mike, the stepfather of Jeff Gordon. He's the VP, General Manager at Jeff Gordon Incorporated. A 2016 West Coast Stock Car Hall of Fame inductee, a Forbes magazine article described him as unusually optimistic, diligent, observant, 
and conscientious about details. He used all those qualities and a stepdad's love to mold a young Jeff Gordon into one of the brightest stars of NASCAR's modern era. Gordon, of course, a four-time NASCAR Cup Series champion. He's been an equity partner at Hendrick Motorsports since 1999. As vice chairman and co-owner, he answers to majority owner Rick Hendrick and focuses on the organization's competition and marketing groups. Jeff Gordon, Inc. is the umbrella that oversees all things Jeff Gordon, including a Chevrolet dealership, the Jeff Gordon Children's Foundation, and so much more. John Bickford joins us on the podcast. John, say hi to Mike Wallace. Hey, Mike. Hey, John. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, no problem. Looking forward to this. Uh, been kind of reading up on you guys. You guys have a hell of a show. Well, so thanks. now the pressure's on. Yeah, this is the first time somebody's <laughs> told us we're supposed to do good. You know. <laughs> So, We've been flying by the seat of our pants for the past year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. So, so John, just to let you know, most of this show, except for the intros, is unscripted. We, uh, I know you from the race world, right? 1991, I think it is. And I'm not even sure I yeah. met you that day, but I remember racing against a kid by the name of Jeff Gordon. Yeah. Uh, and David Green at Lanier, Georgia. I run third. Uh, David won race. Jeff was second. And uh, I told Jeff... Uh, Jeff Kent sitting next to me, I said, I, I, for some reason, my career didn't quite end up as good as Jeff Gordon, but it's probably because John Bickford wasn't helping me. <laughs> so, uh, John, what we try to do for the race fans that are listening in our, our well, how big is our audience, Jeff? Who listens? Uh, Mike, Mike, the whole world is listening. I mean, coast to coast, sea to shining sea, the, the great white north. Sound so, and whole world the, the, the whole world so you get you there's a lot of people listen john so uh i know you the race world knows who you are knows everything you do because a lot of people admire you but the average race fan might have heard the name john bickford but don't know everything and where you come from so i asked you to take us way back in time and and start us out how you know, what did John Bickford do? How did he get in the motorsports world? And, you know, we, we, we do have to touch on Jeff Gordon because it's a, such a popular thing. And then well, it's a great how, story, how did it yeah. all happen? So, uh, well, in your words, I, take I us a, back. I grew up in Napa, California, and it wasn't wine country. It was prune country. And I went to private Catholic schools, and they used to let us out in September to go pick prunes under a work permit. And that was in the late 50s and the early, very early 60s. And um, I was always just a mechanical guy. I took everything apart, couldn't figure out how to put it back together again until I got older, you know. So, uh, But I always wanted to be around racing. And uh, we had a track in um, Vallejo, which is 12 miles south of Napa, called Vallejo Speedway. Uh, many of the people you know, Mike, in racing, Ken Clapp, people like that, all were involved all west coast people you know were involved with Vallejo Speedway it existed up until about mid mid to late 70s but opportunity came up in high school to um to go to the races um had to sneak out because having a, a catholic mother uh you really weren't allowed to go to things that were like car events because that's not where she wanted me to grow up to be a priest that wasn't going to end up being there and mike you know well enough no i was never going to make it as a priest anyway, no, I, so you would have failed that one man i'm telling you <laughs> yeah so anyhow so we um so we so in senior year of high school uh, five of us got together and each chipped in like eight bucks or something like that and bought a um 
1955 Chevy and um, I had learned how to weld. My my grandparents on my father's side were in the construction business and my grandfather was kind enough to point me at an oxyacetylene torch and uh, let me do some work and um, work on the weekends and then he put me in with a stick welder and I learned how to weld. So I was the welding guy. That was my job. That made me the chassis man, right? Never the driver, but the chassis man because I could weld the roll cage up and I could, I could do other things. So that was really the start. And, um, you know, in a, a couple of years out of high school, you know, I, I built, uh, I built a race car and a guy owned the engine in the rear end and I owned the, the chassis, which was a 36 Ford pickup with a 35 Ford two door sedan body on it. And we raced at, um, Vallejo Speedway. And, uh, though we didn't win any features, we, we had best mechanical belt, best appearing car two years in a row. And we made the features, which, as you know, from being around grassroots racing, uh, they would start 18 cars and 40 cars would show up. So the only way to make it into the feature in those days, this would be 67, 68 was to qualify in. So you had to have a good qualifying car and, um, a good driver in a dependable power plant and so on. And we made the features. And the surprising thing is we were like $3,000 all in for car, tires, wheels, motors, rebuild, all of that stuff. We ran uh, 32 times and we were profitable. We actually made money. <laughs> That's where it hooked you at right there, wasn't it? <laughs> hey, I can make a living doing this stuff, right? <laughs> well, so, so actually, I, would, I tried to do that, and that's how my next career came along. I had to get a real job. Um, okay, I mean, I so first of all, who was the driver of that car? Do you the remember? Driver is my lo- oh, we're still very best friends. He's 82 years old. His name is Daryl Dudley. He went on to win multiple championships in uh, super modifieds and we our our class was called hardtop they had a they had a stock car class and they and the hardtops there was two classes that ran at Vallejo Speedway and and uh, they the hardtops no longer exist super modifieds kind of went away and it, it all evolved into sprint cars their super modifieds were winged the mo- the hardtops that we ran were not winged but but it was uh yeah so it so you know I was working for the family and spending most of my time trying to you know, go out and then I get, I get uh, married and I have a kid. And so I got to have a legitimate job and I go to work for a hospital sick room supply company and they immediately uh, asked me to weld a wheelchair. Then they asked me to run a lathe to make some parts for, they made artificial arms and they, um, they did wheelchairs. Well, then somebody comes along and says, Hey, we have this guy in a wheelchair and we need to get him around. Do you think, who, who can we get to modify a van? And uh, they said, well, you know, John built race cars on the weekends and stuff. Maybe he could come up with something. <laughs> so we modified a van for a guy to get in and I came, made a lift. And, and then they said, well, we have this other guy. We need him to do it. And I said, well, why, why are we hauling these people around? Why don't we just have them drive? You know, I was a pretty arrogant guy at 21 years old. I thought, you know, submarine can run through the ocean at 30 knots and not run into things. We ought to be able to get a guy who can see to drive a car, you know, or we're in control, <laughs> right? So that's a love, uh, love, wonderful theory. A submarine can run underneath. <laughs> I like and that. Not hit well, that's actually that's actually what I used for the state rehabilitation. So Maryland Naval Shipyard was in Vallejo, and they built submarines, and so I used that. And so they said, okay, well, you think you can build one for this guy? He was a swimming accident. His name was 
Jim Biscashi, and he was in high school. He's like six foot four. And um, so uh, we took a 1967 Metro, International Metro van, put a lift on it, modified it, changed the steering, modified the steering, make it easy for him. He was a quadriplegic, C4, C5, quadriplegic. And um, he was the first guy in the world to ever drive uh, a vehicle as a quadriplegic and I did the vehicle. So that was my, that was my life. That, uh, that's a pretty big uh, check mark in your life big, there, man. That's, that's impressive. No kidding. Yeah. I was just yeah. thinking about that a little more. That's strong. Like, wow. <laughs> Vehicles for, and I say we, it was myself and a guy named Bruce Graves, who was an older, older gentleman. But we, when I ended with that company, cause I started my own company, uh, just building products and selling them to people around the world. So more people could have the opportunity to drive that were disabled. And, um, but we, we had, um, we had about a 2000, three, maybe 3000 square foot shop and like two shifts. And we were getting our vehicles direct from general motors. We were using uh, Chevy Beauville vans at the time. And, um, and strangely enough, when I left to start my own, I had hired a quadriplegic, named Phil Niles to work for me in the office and talk to the various different state agencies and individuals. And he, he ended up starting his own company called driving aids. And, um, he ran that company, I guess, gee, I don't know, up until maybe 10 years ago or so, but he modified vans for people that had same similar disabilities. And of course in the automotive world, things evolve from a van, you put a lift onto a vehicle that you could just drive right into. And, and most most everybody has seen vehicles now with people getting out of them from wheelchairs where they actually drive. Um, and in those days, we, uh, we kept the people in their wheelchairs and they actually drove from their wheelchairs. And I, I, I've been away from it so long. I don't know, but, um, it, uh, my wife and I started a company and we just made the products, put them in a box and shipped them around the world. And, um, they, uh, we called it mobility products and design. And we started it in uh, August of 76 and we sold the handicapped portion of it in 86 uh, to a company. And get this, Mike, remember, remember the brawn people that in racing? Yes, yes. I was just yes. thinking about so them when you were talking I, about this. Right. So Ralph Braun and I were on the phone all the time. He was my largest dealer. He was located in around Lafayette, Indiana, <clears throat> not a smaller town, but it, it, there in Indiana. And his, the company I sold to was this, it was a company in Minneapolis. They sold that company years later to Ralph Braun. So Ralph, Ralph had talked to me about buying my company and he just wouldn't come up with enough money. I sold it to somebody else. <laughs> and I didn't sell it so I could come to Indiana racing with Jeff because we just couldn't manage. The company was too challenging. You had to be there and I couldn't go racing with Jeff on a full-time basis. And so we sold that and that's how we were able to move to Indiana to go racing. But, um, but yeah, so the whole thing ends up back in Ralph's hands and, and I, I, he came to the races, I don't know, what was it, 15 years ago? And I went over to him and I introduced myself to him. And we, we sat and talked for probably an hour and a half at the races because he was in a wheelchair. And his son, yeah. his son was the one who really ran the racing thing. I think they had, they had a number of different partnerships. And it seems like Terry Bradshaw was involved with them. Or something. I, I don't even remember who, was, who all was involved. They had a competitive car, as I remember. But, uh, but yeah, Ralph and I talked, he ended up passing away. Uh, I don't know when, but you know, years back, but, but it's funny. We had never met. We'd talked on the phone, shipped him, you know, tens of thousands of dollars worth of product over the years. And, um, but 
Never met him. Yeah, that is kind of unique, especially from the race world. So that was the Braun Racing Team, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I know the name. Yeah, and uh, they had yeah. they filled a lot of really really good cars. And yeah. I'm, yeah. Draw, I'm drawing a blank right now, and I don't know why I am. The, the boy that drives for uh, for colleague, he's the uh, the nephew of of Braun. So uh, oh, oh, okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so. Yeah, small world, except but a, a yeah, big world at the same time. Yeah, you know, so those so and I stayed, I stayed in touch with a few of, of the different people that I got to know pretty well. That they they would stay in touch with. But you know, you're going back to this uh, vehicles for the quadriplegic. We we did the first one in '67, and the first competitor in the U.S. came about in the Los Angeles area in 1971. So we had four years of of a vehicle building without any interruption and it was you know it was a uh, it, it was a fun time you, you know there wasn't a lot of rules it was kind of like racing early on you you were a solutions here's the guy's challenges and you come up with solutions you didn't you weren't covered by governmental agencies scrutinizing every little detail that you did you you were held uh, responsible to create things that were safe that weren't going to put other people on the highways in, in danger. So I did most of the driver training as well. Um, and, you know, it was, you had to, the only way you drive these vehicles was from the seat of a wheelchair and the steering, I had to modify the steering, which the, the steering is very much the same Saginaw steering, uh, which has evolved to other companies, but that we use in, uh, in racing that has a torsion bar that you, modify the torsion bar diameter to increase or decrease the the effort at the steering wheel so it really was pretty simple simple stuff you know that we were doing and and um we, i happened to be the guy who put the first power steering on a race car at Vallejo speedway so my driver had little arms and he was falling out of the seat at the end of the race so i said why don't we put power steering on everybody said well you can't put power steering on a race car the motors run too many rpms all this kind of stuff i said you people don't know what you're talking about we put power steering on <laughs> Perfect. Man, John, you were just an innovator back then. No kidding. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. Good. It's a good spot for a break. Let's take a timeout. We're talking the stepfather of Jeff Gordon. He's the VP GM at Jeff Gordon, Inc. John Bickford is our guest today, and you're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Hi, it's Mike Wallace. You need to get behind the wheel of a vehicle that's built tough with Mark Ficken Ford Lincoln. Right now, you can get $500 off any new or used vehicle that we have in stock. That's right, $500 off any vehicle that is currently in stock. To take advantage of this deal, simply visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com slash Wallace. Don't miss out on this opportunity to save big on our entire inventory. Get $500 off of new and used cars, trucks, and SUVs at Mark Ficken Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard now. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car and a NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities and programs. Visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointment, or collision need. We identified John Bickford as the VPGM at Jeff Gordon, Inc. He let us know during the break that he is officially retired so good for you john once again here's mike wallace well we're still going to refer to him as vice president <laughs> retired isn't, there you that, go. isn't that how those uh is how get, they do it in the military the military right. titles major it, general so and so retired retired yeah so <laughs> john you still got a big title in our eyes buddy <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah so you know life for me as we're talking about it was uh really rewarding you know i mean i i think that uh a solutions engineer is a title that uh, people should be uh, should be given because I'm not really a mechanical engineer, though I did a mechanical stuff. Not really a, a you know a uh, chemical engineer or a hydraulic engineer, but yet you had to work with all of those kind of things through racing. And I think that plays a role in a lot of grassroots racers uh, that we run into that are not really educated or titled or, but they're solutions engineers. The solution. The problem is I can't get in front of Mike Wallace, so I got to get my car faster to get in front of Mike Wallace. What do I got to do? And you end up being a solutions engineer. You know, you make the car lighter, you you do something. But I think that all of the background that a lot of these people that are successful in racing, um, they're solutions. It's it's just finding a solution to the to the problem. And sometimes the problem is too many pages in the rule book. You got to figure out how to get between the pages, you know. <laughs> so, John, you know, it's funny you say that solutions engineer, which is a, a great title, and you must have talked to my wife forty something years ago because she she tells me that she is a domestic engineer. Oh, there She's you not go. a yeah. wife. She's a domestic, domestic engineer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I have, I have one of those. She's up in the house now doing her domestic engineering, and which ultimately end up me being making something for her. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, so. You, you have this career where you, you've got incredibly innovative. You created these vehicles or accessories to al allow handicapped people to drive vehicles, which is just, I'm thinking about it. And the reason I think about it, I have a, a niece who's 32 years old and she's in a wheelchair. Uh, yep. She has muscular dystrophy and she was so happy in the last year or so, her parents got a van that she could sit up front yep. next to them. And it's just like... You can see it in her eyes. It just, it just kind of like opens up this whole new world. So being able to drive. So after that part of your life happens, where do you progress from there? You had mentioned a little bit that Jeff, he must have started racing out there a little bit. Were you still racing while you well, were running this company? Or so, we, so we started our company in, in 76. And uh, uh, we had Jeff, we lived on the street with a lot of older kids, and they were all racing BMX bicycles. The racetrack was maybe a thousand yards from our house and you could ride up the street and through a, through a neighbor, a little neighbor's yard. And, and there you were at the, at the Vallejo Powell uh, police athletic league BMX racetrack. And, you know, back in the seventies BMX, I don't know if you raced or where any of your boys ever raced BMX, but it was a big, big deal back in those days. So, so Jeff was, he was uh, five years old. And, uh, and so he said, and he's a little, little 30 pounds, right. At, at <laughs> best. And uh, so he wanted to race, and uh, so okay, so let's let's take some of this skill and let's get you a really lightweight bike. And then 
I'm a practice nut. You know, I believe if you're going to do something, you got to practice. You, you just got to work at it. So he and I would go every evening. Uh, and, you know, we had weather conditions are a lot different than out here. So our, we had California weather there in the Vallejo, Napa area. So we we go up every evening and practice, practice. And the, the track was open. So the starting gate was open. You could go and practice. And we changed his bike around and we changed the gearing. We, we'd mess around with the bike and make the bike lighter and, and all this kind of stuff. And so he started racing bicycles. Well, after about the fourth race, fifth race, his mother sees the ambulance leaving constantly. And she, she's, you know, she's going, I, I think we need to rethink this. You know, I'm not sure he's too little and the kids, he's, he's in a five to eight year old class. And some of these eight year old kids are, they're just knocking him down. Now he, he was actually winning some races. He was just, you know, a, a competitor. And so I said, okay, I said, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't want him to see him get hurt either. So a racer that I raced with at Vallejo Speedway named Paul Stranetta, uh, I heard had these little cars, they were called quarter midgets. And so I called him up and I said, hey, what's the story? If somebody tells me you got these quarters, yeah, yeah, you want to buy them? And I said, well, I don't even know what they are. So <laughs> I went up to his house and he said, look, you can have these two cars. One's got a motor. I got some wheels and tires here, some extra stuff. He said, "This it's really obsolete. He said, these aren't current. But he said, here's a book about it. And, um, and uh, I think there's a track in Sacramento, California. And I think there's one in Sunnyvale, California. And I said, okay. How much you want? And he says four hundred dollars. And I said, okay. I, I have no idea what it's worth. So I buy I buy this stuff and I haul it home. I pull up in front of the house and I tell Carol. I says, hey, we're gonna give up bicycle racing. Look what I got. And she come opens the door and there's two cars on a trailer. And she goes, wait a minute, we're leaving bicycles and we're going to cars. And he's only <laughs> years old. Are you crazy? Are we should we? Care? You know. So um, anyhow, so that's how we got started in quarter midget racing. And of course. With a little bit of work, we found the racetracks and we met people and we just started uh, doing quarter midget racing. And of course, uh, I'm sure it was like this in your life, Mike. Once you get started in something, you, you, you're you 110% in it. Um, you know, we, we found ourselves in a quarter midget track virtually every weekend and, you know, frustration because the kid's not doing what he needs to be doing. And, and then all of a sudden the kid gets good enough. And then I feel like I'm the weakest link. So I'm working extra time to not be the weakest link. And, and I go, well, I'm not going to put this, I own a machine shop. I'm making these, this stuff. I'm, I can't be using these junk parts. So I started making parts that were better. And then he's winning. And then the kids are going, the only reason he wins is because he's got these fancy parts on the car that his dad makes. So I made all the parts available to all the quarter midget kids. They could, they could buy the parts. So I had a quarter midget parts business and, and screwed up a guy in another business. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Not only that opened the door for the competition, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, so part of it, part of it was, I just, I just wanted the kid to get credit for what he was doing and not just get credit to, the parts that he had on his car or the fact that, you know, and, and so it was, you know, you just, you just try to make sure he gets the credit. And so we, we, we knew that we weren't going to do this forever. So we just said, well, let's get into go-kart racing. And Mike, I don't know if, if you or your brothers ever raced go-karts, but we were racing these two cycle go-karts and we actually came to the nationals in Quincy, Illinois. I don't know if you've ever, you know, where Quincy, Illinois. Is. Yes, sir. I, yeah. You know what, John, I raced a dirt car for two years at Quincy, Illinois. There was a quarter mile oh. dirt track up there yep. and uh, yep. ended up winning the, involved in that in 1989 i won the nascar winston racing series championship at that racetrack how about that yeah. cool. 
Yeah. We wound up, so Jeff was running on dirt and asphalt in a, in a Yamaha powered 100 cc go kart, and we were tied up with a, a guy named uh, Gary Emick. Emick. Oh yeah, yeah. Emick was out of Kansas City. No, he was out of Sacramento, California. The guy out of Kansas City was, uh, yeah. I well, I must have. Did Gary Emick ever go to Kansas City? So. So Emmett carts were all over the world, actually. Gary won the world championships against Lake Speed the year before Lake Speed won the world championships in go-karts. Okay. So Gary Gary passed away in 85, but but Gary and, and Lake Speed raced a lot back in the early days, you know, of their of the, of Lake and Gary's career. But anyhow, and Gary actually started out as a as a Harley Davidson factory dirt track rider but and went on to going to go-karts but that's a complete another story but anyhow we ran go-karts so we could see go-karts were kind of going away and i was making go-kart parts for emic and a couple other go-kart manufacturers motor mounts and various things and all the machine kind of stuff you know and and uh, so john, we said, john okay, i have well, a question go. for you i'm, I'm sure. listening with the quarter midgets and the go-karts you're making parts for your competitors did that, oh, was that just kind of a side gig or was it kind of really a little business? Was it? Oh, no, it was, it was profitable. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I make the parts for Jeff. He'd be my prototyper. And they were basically a solution. So, you know, in go-kart motors, that flex is where the clutch is at. And to get more RPMs out of it, you got to take the flex out of it. So I I made special mounts that also supported the tip of the, the clutch. And that way, when your starter went in there, when you got the higher RPMs, it, and it made it easier to adjust so you didn't have any chain failures and things like that. And so all of a sudden, everybody was buying my, my mounts because they were all CNC machined and all that stuff. And they were anodized. They looked nice and everything. So I just made them available, and people would buy them, and they were they were profitable. I mean, it wasn't the core of the business, but it was certainly a uh, a piece of business. I made hubs and and quick disconnects for for quarter midgets. I made uh, spindles and steering arms and things, and that evolved into the next phase, which was Jeff was going to move on to some other form of racing, and which ended up being sprint cars. And so about a year before he got into sprint cars, I started making sprint car parts. And I had a lot of friends that were racing sprint cars, and they would come to me and they'd say, hey, we're having this problem here, and we have this problem here. And I said, okay, well, well, we'll make these parts. And that was a profitable business as well, And but we just make the parts. And we just added it into our product line. But when I when I wanted to leave and, and take Jeff racing in the Midwest, you know, we moved to Indiana. They wouldn't let him race sprint cars in California. He was too young. We couldn't have the business. My sister, it was, my family were working with me and everything, but it was the handicap business had a lot of liability to it. You really had to be on top of things and, and be careful with your distributors and the dealers install them. And I just didn't feel that pressure on. And plus, you needed some cash to go go race. And so we sold that business, and that, that gave us the capital to go to Indiana, buy a house, build a small shop and raced out of there so that's how kind of we got to indiana so what prompted how did how did you know to go to indiana what what made you aware that that's where you needed to be so you know carrie agajanian right yes sir so so carrie agajanian i tell everybody carrie agajanian ran jeff gordon out of california uh and uh, started his racing career so carrie is a represents uh from legal department all of the various different tracks around california and and aids uh, tracks around the country for liability for all sorts of track management because they his family ran ascot speedway in southern california and um 
Ken Clapp had a management company that managed and helped a, a lot of the tracks out. Of course, I had to call these guys and say, hey, I got I got Jeff Gordon here. And, and you know, we're pretty we went to Florida and we raced in Florida and we got a lot of notoriety. And he and uh, he's, he's handles the car pretty well and and everything like that. What do you think? And they, I said, hell no, you can't race in California. You got to be 18. So, you know, being a, a rookie at all this kind of stuff, I said, well, it must be the insurance. So I'll uh, I'll get Jeff emancipated. So Kerry Agajanian uh, put me on to the emancipation idea. So we started the emancipation when he was a, Jeff was the first guy in the country to be emancipated for racing. And he had to go before a superior court judge and answer all sorts of questions. And we basically created what the kids that race motorcycles and various legend cars and in USAC and all that stuff, they use a, an emancipation document that emancipates them from the signing of the document to go in the back gate. And that's all the Jeff Gordon rule. And we did that in 1985, March of 1985. And uh, it's still used to this day. And many attorneys around know it as the Jeff Gordon deal. So it, it was, but that was Kerry and, and, uh, and the, he and I and this attorney, Bill Spain in San Francisco, that, that we, we put all this stuff together and we did that. And it was, uh, but that basically to race, we had to move to the Midwest. They, they didn't have a problem with us racing out there. We had like uh, four tracks. So in 85, summer of 85, we went back, lived in Finley, Ohio, and uh, we raced Bloomington, Finley. Um, uh, we raced uh, Dave Blaney's uh, grandfather's track. Which That's Sharon was, uh, Speedway, Sharon, right? Sharon yeah. Speedway. Yeah, we raced up there, and we raced uh, – we raced Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Um, we raced all around. We, we could race uh, in 85 in the summer. I think we could race four times a week. In the middle of the summer in July, sometime we had a, a what's called Ohio Speed Week, which you run. Uh, we ran seven times in a row that year. And, you know, that's, that was pretty big. He was 13. And when uh, we, came to, we came to Illinois when, and this is kind of funny, so Coors Beer moved in and started distributing beer in the St. Louis area in August of 1985. And they had a, what was called the, um, what would they call it? They, they had a name for it. it was a Coors something. So we were downtown St. Louis at this event launching Coors beer and Jeff Gordon and I are sitting at a table with all these people drinking Coors beer. I don't, I don't drink beer. And obviously at 13, Jeff didn't drink beer. And his birthday was that weekend in, and Mike, you you probably run Granite City, Illinois, across the river. There I did, State yeah. Coast, that, that half mile dirt track. So we were running that half mile dirt track that weekend in Little Springfield. Did you ever run Little Springfield? I did. Yep. Yeah. I ran so Little we Springfield and the mile of Springfield. Oh, okay. So Little Springfield was a quarter mile dirt track right there in Springfield, Illinois. We we ran the mile tur- track too, but but not that weekend. But we ran the little and the little track, and then we ran, and then he had his birthday at Granite City, Illinois. That that year in august and it was always funny because here's here's the coors launch and they got a 13 year old at the table launching coors beer you know (laughs) john you you would love this right now i just pulled up on my phone as uh you brought up granite city illinois that's tri-city speedway right So, right. so, so my brother kenny just posted a picture two days ago that says i love all forms of racing and it's me uh, I won the late model race at Tri-City, holding the checker flag is my brother, Rusty, Kenny, <laughs> Paul Andrews in the picture. So oh, it's, uh, wow. you know, we all grew up together. And there we are talking about Tri-City. The old school. 
Yeah. We'll talk some more when we come back. We've got to take a break. We're talking to John Bickford, and you're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the SpeedSport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace is teaming up with Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard to save you money on your vehicle purchase. Right now, you can get $500 off any new or used vehicle in stock. Hey, Mike, there's a landing page online with all the info you need to take advantage of this offer. FordLincolnCharlotte.com slash Wallace. You can view inventory and more. You can even listen to any of the 80-plus episodes of Fast Car to NASCAR while there. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Brought to you today by Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities and programs. Visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointment, or collision need. He's Jeff Gordon's stepfather, former VP GM at Jeff Gordon, Inc., John Bickford is on the line. Once again, here's Mike Wallace. Well, John, through all the racing we're talking about, the quarter midgets, the go-karts, the sprint cars, I realize we're the solution engineer that we talked about early on. Uh, yeah. You were fixing problems. But now we're in St. Louis, Missouri. That's where I grew up at. And you're downtown St. Louis with a 14-year-old Jeff Gordon trying to introduce Coors Beer. As in, a sponsor. Into an Anheuser-Busch <laughs> area. Right. Yep. Take us from there. <laughs> yeah, well, he was actually 13. He had his 14th birthday that weekend, so uh, he was 14 at some point. But, you know, it was a little bit crazy. But, you know, we were we were so focused uh, on our race. And we, I mean, we, I was aware of the fact, but I mean, I don't think Jeff, Jeff, no one even really talked about it other than they thought it was a kind of a unique deal that every, or here we are in St. Louis, Budweiser's hometown, and everybody's got Coors decals on their cars. And even I even questioned the all-star circuit of champions head guy. Uh, you know, I said, hey, you, you know, I mean, Jeff's not of age. He said, you're of age. Put the decal on. Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> so, so, you know. I love so how anyhow, simple was, things were back then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so we were, we were racing there. And, uh, you know, it just uh, – we, we ended up, that was 85, and we knew we wanted to live in the Midwest. And, and from a parent standpoint, we, we the, the city of Vallejo, the city of the bigger cities, you know, it just, it just wasn't, um, it, it didn't fit us. We were, we're pretty conservative people. And, um, you know, we just thought, you know, going to school in farm country, you know, was going to be a better deal. And, and we'd, we'd been around a lot that summer, you know, and we could just tell from the people at the racetrack, we just liked those people. And we liked their their mindset and their work ethics and everything. And I, I grew up being a hardworking guy, working all the time, you know, to try to be a little better and have a little more in my pocket and so on. And so we, we just want to see Jeff do that. And one thing, you know, I know this to this day is that when he went to school, 
um, after school, there was no screwing around. They, the kids went and got on the tractors and they were farming. And, you know, and it was, it was just, Jeff came home from school and uh, worked on the race car, you know, and, and, or helped me in the shop or, you know, um, but there wasn't any, you know, it just, it was just a different life. And, uh, I, you know, I'm always been happy that I made that decision that because it was multiple, we got to race, uh, we get, he got a good high school education. He met a lot. He's still friends. This last weekend, I saw one of his friends hanging with him at the track. Bruce Pfeiffer was walking around Phoenix with him. You know, so here's a kid he went to high school with from, you know, 10th, 11th and 12th grade. So, you know, I, I, I just, you know, you grew up in the Midwest, so you know what I'm talking about. And, and I, I'm a really, that was a great family decision that we made. And we, we lived in a little town 20 miles west of uh, Indianapolis. And uh, the whole idea was that we were going to end up racing indie cars that was our goal we were following along in the in the dust of allens or jr you know and uh that was that was what we were going to do and uh, uh we couldn't see al jr but we knew his dust was there because he'd been running sprint cars just three or four years before us so okay it didn't work out but you know it was still a plan so so uh, maybe i'm fast forward in this conversation i don't mean to so your focus was on indie cars open wheel cars absolutely some, something changed. Yeah. So we, so what happened was we, we were, we were trying to figure out why we weren't getting the recognition. You know, we were, we were making the newspaper, but page 12, you know, as a sprint car, local sprint car guys and everything. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm reading about Robbie Gordon and the Chris Economaki column of speed sport news. And, you know, I'm thinking, okay, what do, what do I got to do here? Why? About Robbie Gordon all the time. Robbie's running on roads and who even pays attention? That's not even on TV hardly. You know, here we are on TV occasionally and, and stuff. So I'm I'm asking around trying to figure out this out. And, and I I have a friend of mine who's with VP Fuels and he says, Oh, I, I, he says, I, I know Chocolate Myers. Let me I'll call we'll call Earnhardt, ask Earnhardt what he thinks. Oh, this is 1988. You know, and things we're, we're thinking we need to be at India in 91, 92, is, you know, and we're it's not looking like we're going to make it to India because you can't really do anything until you're 21, right? So, so this guy gets a hold of Chocolate. Chocolate says, Yeah, yeah, Earnhardt will talk to him. So he says, uh, Call this number. So I called the number one day, and, and Earnhardt says, You know, I he answered the phone, Yeah. And I said, hey, this is uh, John Bickford. I got, I got your phone number. I said, oh yeah, I've heard about you. You got that Jeff Gordon kid. Says, <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, uh, you know, I'd like to talk to you about. It. He said, get him off the dirt. Call me back. Hung up the phone. Really? <laughs> what a great person. That was short and to the point, right? He knew that this kid was going to be a thorn in his side one day. You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going, okay. So I got Chris Economaki writing about a guy in the desert. And Earnhardt's telling me to get off this stuff. And USAC says, hey, we're going to start racing IRP in 1988. So I'm thinking, okay, so I got to go to these 1988 races. So I go out there because I, you know, I'm pretty focused on this kid and he's safe. I mean, a wing, we're not running too much non-wing sprint car because I didn't feel it was safe. I felt the wing cars were a lot safer and stuff. And there was no such thing as a 360, a lesser class of sprint car. We were running 410, 700 horsepower. You know, my car weighed about 1,230 pounds, you know, and I had a 90-pound, 90 95-pound driver in the car. And we're, we're actually winning local races. I mean, we're not winning World Outlaws and stuff like that, but we're, we're competitive locally. 
and we were running quite a few races a year and, and, and we'd already been to Australia racing and, and uh, we're headed to New Zealand in 88. Uh, so we're, you know, we're, we're moving up the ladder, but we're just not getting what we need. And all of a sudden I find out ESPN is going to do the TV races. So I go out, I watch the 88 races at IRP. They ran a couple times out there. And I said, you know, I think we can build a car. So that winter we built a car. So 89, comes along and we're all ready and uh in the meantime bob east i don't know if you know bob east mike heard the name very famous in that whole open wheel world yeah so bob east has started his business in uh, brownsburg in indiana and uh, he'd come from uh, des moines iowa where he'd been working for a company called challenger and bob was a, a very successful ascot racer and i i knew bob in the 70s a little bit you know we weren't close friends but knew him and talked to him off and on just just two competitors you know not he was a driver and a car mechanic builder and innovator and everything and so he's in brownsburg so i go in to see him and and uh, another friend mutual friend of ours had said he had a problem back to solution engineering he says bob says hey i, I can't get these bird cages made which is how you control the rear axle you know i can't get this made and i said i can make that for you i do it so i went home did the drawings, ran the CNC. I had a CNC machine at my shop in Indiana, and I brought him the parts back, and he goes, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. Can you make these parts? So another business. Here we are again. I'm back in <laughs> the solution and, uh, engineering's kicking in solution big time. Engineering. <laughs> so uh, Bob and I become good friends. He says, man, he's, and he had raced against Jeff a number of times. And he says, you know, we got to get Jeff in a midget, because that's what Bob's business was, building midgets. And I said, oh. We never run a midget. You know, why, why are we ever run a midget? Oh, you run midget. He said, Roger Pinsky comes to the midget races night before the 500, you know, and he said, you need to run that race. And I said, well, I don't have any money to, to build a midget or anything like that. And he says, well, let's go down to Louisville, Kentucky, and and uh, you can help me with, uh, I'm going I'm to do Steve Lewis. You, you probably know Steve Lewis. Yeah, so I, Steve I, Lewis, I'm going to help Steve Lewis with the car. And he said, I want to introduce you to this guy. So we go down to Louisville, Kentucky, and and we meet this guy named Raleigh Hemling, and uh, Raleigh Hemling's driver flipped the car after the checkered flag running like 23rd or something like that and destroyed the car after the checkered flag. And so Raleigh obviously fired him. And so Bob's saying, Raleigh, you know, here, meet Jeff Gordon and everything. And, and I mean, now you meet Jeff Gordon in, in even in 1980. 89 he was a pretty small guy you know he, he was still in high school and uh, at that particular race and stuff and raleigh says oh well, when you grow up give me a call tells him he says he's he's already won like 35 sprint car races and he's 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 run third in the world outlaw race against wolfgang and kinzer and stuff so he already knows how to drive raleigh he's just what do you think about him driving the midget oh i don't know you know he's just a kid i i don't know so long story short um raleigh decides has a couple phone calls with jeff they they really kind of hook up to you know uh, you know just they just hit it off you know i mean almost fought raleigh had girls and, and no boys and so he kind of became his adopted son, you might say. And so they, we built a car, Bob built, and I built this car in two weeks. And we show up at the uh, night before the 500, uh, 1989's the biggest, biggest, maybe second biggest race, maybe even third in some people's eyes, biggest midget race in the country. 65 cars show up and, um, and it's all USAC. And um, 
shorten the story of Jeff gets the pole, new track record, and uh, wins the race. And he'd never sat in a midget before. And, and of course, it was funny. The announcers were Steve Chassie and Larry Newber. You, you probably remember Larry Newber. I remember Larry, yes, sir. Yeah, so they're up there going through, the, and it was like you could almost hear the microphone. There's something you paid. Who is this guy? You know, he just graduated from high school. What do you mean? You know, and like, <laughs> who never heard of this guy before? Who is he? You know? And it was it was absolutely hilarious because we got to be really good friends with both Steve Chassie and Larry Newber through the years. And they, they talked about that night and how they were totally unarmed. They had no stats, no talking information. They were sending people out to the face. Who is that kid in, in Raleigh's car? We've never heard of him before. <laughs> so all the things Earnhardt said, get off the dirt, get on the asphalt. So. Chris Economy started writing about Jeff, and we didn't get to Indy, but, you know, things started moving forward and, and progressing, and we got a lot more opportunities coming to us, and we met Chip Canassi, we got to meet uh, Roger Penske, we got to meet, you know, uh, A.J. Foyt, Jeff was going to different IndyCar races and talking to these guys, and that particular period of time, it was really about uh, having uh, backing, financial backing. And um, we didn't have any financial backing. I mean, we were helmet bag, helmet, and a lot of enthusiasm and, and some raw talent. And uh, it, they just needed more. And um, the opportunities that lit, lied in, in uh, NASCAR, and Larry Newber uh, said, you know, he said, I, I broadcast a lot of NASCAR races and in ASA races. He said, I think you ought to think about going ASA races. I think I can find you riding ASA. And I, and I looked at ASA and I, you know, I watched a couple of ASA races and it just seemed like there was so many people drive down in the corner and get hit and spun around and fighting. And just, it just seemed like, man, you gotta, I just didn't, I just didn't buy into it, you know? And I said, nah, I, and, and about that time, um, this kid, this, uh, uh, Kenny Schrader says, you know what, you need to think about because we raced USAC with them all the time, Silver Crown cars. And, and uh, he drove for Boston Louie in the 29 car. And so, and we knew him, you know, from midgets and sprint car racing and everything. So Kenny says, you really ought to think about the stock car deal. It's really working good for me. And I said, well, how are you? Well, you know, he doesn't even know how to shift a forward. He's never driven a stick shift. I mean, what the hell? You know, and he says, he says, you need to go see Buck Baker. So I called Buck Baker on the phone. I said, hey, Buck, I said, this is so-and-so and so-and-so. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've read about you, kid. And uh, I said, well, what do you think about his school, your school, your Rockingham? You know, Schrader says that you're the only real school where someone could actually drive a car. And I said, well, do you have a car that would, would, would have made the tail end of a Bush Brand National race? And uh, and uh, he says, yeah, he says, I think I got a car down here. He says, uh, yeah, I get $4,000 for a three-day school. Oh, wow, $4,000. Well, I've got $4,000, you know. So I called Larry Newber. I said, well, I talked to Buck Baker. It's $4,000. And Larry says, well, hey, what if I talk to ESPN? And ESPN follows Jeff down there. This is 1990. And uh, I called Buck back. And I said, hey, Buck, I said, what if Jeff were bring ESPN cameras down with him, you know, and kind of record this thing and put it on air because he's running all these Thursday night or Saturday night thunder by those days. He said, bring them down. It's free. <laughs> Hell yeah! yeah. Now we're yeah, talking. We'll be there right away. So, so June, I, I believe it was June of 1990. He went down. He, he drove this drove car down there, and um, and they had this car that was a uh, um, 
it was and rest in peace leo jackson but leo jackson's son-in-law a guy named hugh connery had kept a car there uh, at the buck baker school so when he wanted to come up and just run some laps and have fun get the car would be there so hugh so buck calls hugh and says hugh you got to come up and see this kid he's, he's really going to be good and uh, so hugh came up and and uh, he goes out and he takes his car out and runs a few laps and he tells Jeff, he says, here, he says, take this car. I said, take it easy on the car. He said, don't just, just kind of see what you think. Cause this car here could actually make a, a Bush Grand National race. So Jeff put like a couple of pillows behind him and all this kind of stuff, strapped them in. And I wasn't there. His mother was with him. And, um, and because uh, if you remember in those days when you're his age, you couldn't travel, you couldn't get a hotel room on your own, especially right. in the, belt so his mother had to go with him and she he didn't want his mother out at the track with him because he didn't want the other guys to know he had to have his mother come with him you know <laughs> at us. So, so you know it always been a funny story so anyhow so he goes out and he take cruises around he comes in he tells him he says well he says the car's it's got a terrible push in it and he says i i'm guessing it's a track bar but i i don't really know a lot about these cars and and Hugh says you were three seconds a lap faster than I was. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, so so anyhow, so Hugh calls me on the phone. He says, "Hey, I want to hire this kid. I got a three year contract for him. We you, you got to have a corporation and everything like that." And I and Jeff called me up saying, "I want to go stock car racing. This guy's going to hire me and and all this kind of stuff." And so I'm going like, "Oh man, we got to start Jeff Gordon Incorporated." So I'm busy doing all that stuff. And and then I said, "Well." Hugh, do you, do you have a truck and trailer? How are you going to do this? Oh, I'm working with Steve Barkdall. I got, I got hold, hold that thought right there, John. That was an excellent story. The, the, yeah. <laughs> the Buck Baker Driving School. We're talking to John Bickford and more with Jeff Gordon in just a second. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media. Hi, it's Jeff Kent. You need to get behind the wheel of a vehicle that's built tough with Mark Thicken Ford Lincoln. Right now, you can get $500 off any new or used vehicle that we have in stock. That's right, $500 off any vehicle currently in stock. To take advantage of this deal, simply visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com slash Wallace. Don't miss out on this opportunity to save big on our entire inventory. Get $500 off new or used cars, trucks, and SUVs at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard now. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows.
Welcome back to the Speed Sport Podcast Studios. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. We're brought to you today by Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln on South Boulevard. The team at Mark Fick and Ford Lincoln works hard every day to be a community partner in supporting their customers, local businesses, as well as being involved in local charities and programs. Visit FordLincolnCharlotte.com today for your next vehicle selection, service appointment, or collision need. One more go-round with John Bickford. And once again... Here's Mike Wallace. Well, as I talked about before, Jeff, these good shows can go for hours, but we got to sum it up in short here. Great stories. Okay, John. So we, we were talking about getting ready for Rockingham, and you mentioned Steve Barktall, and I said we'll take a break there. Tell me about Steve Barktall. I worked with Steve in the past, and actually drove a car for his dad one time for the Daytona 500. So, uh, where's Steve so, fit in the picture? So Steve. Um, He's up in Asheville, and you got Leo Jackson, you got uh, Hugh Connery, the son-in-law, you got Andy Petrie, the crew chief, and Andy and Steve Barkdahl are, are close friends, and we got Jeff Gordon coming into the picture via the son-in-law of Leo Jackson, Hugh Connery, and so Hugh says, Steve, how are we going to do this? And he says, well, my dad, he's got the whole operation here, and he said, we got this Pontiac car that Hugh owns, so we got the truck, the trailer, he said, we got to get us a crew chief. Andy says, call Ray Aram, see if he'll come He'll come down from New Jersey and, and uh, crew chief the car. So along comes, here comes Ray Everham, and now it's Ray Everham and Steve Barkdahl. And then they put a couple of guys together that usually help Phil on the car, and they all show up uh, at Charlotte Motor Speedway. And I guess it was late October. Actually, I think it was September because it was, remember how they used to test at Charlotte before the actual race weekend? You used to have used to be morning was Bush Grand National, afternoon was Cup, and then the re- next day it would reverse, and they had two weeks of testing before the actual race. But that was probably back when you were getting started. So yeah. you but, start on Wednesdays doing that. Yeah. Yeah. So and Humpy used to have his fastest guy, and the, the, all. Anyhow, so that was how Jeff got his first laps around Charlotte Motor Speedway, and of course they had the they had the rain out of qualifying for Bush Grand National. And so they had a hooligan race. So they took the top 10 guys out of the hooligan race. We had to start last because we had no points. And lo and behold, Jeff and Randy Baker make contact together. Now, that's Buck Baker's son. You probably know Randy. And so we have we learned our first experience in putting a clip on the back of a stock car. So we put the clip on the car, and we couldn't go run New Hampshire. And I don't know if you remember, in 1990 was the first New Hampshire Bush Grand National races. So... So the next race was Rockingham, and the the morning of qualifying, Ray and Leo Jackson are laying underneath uh, the car, uh, working on the truck arms of the car, trying to get figure out how to make this thing faster. Jeff's mom and I come rolling into the track because we got lost trying to find Rockingham, only to get there and realize you can't just buy a pit pass for a NASCAR race. And thank thank God. Uh, uh, I can't remember who was in charge of the pits for uh, for NASCAR, Bush Grand National, but uh, Marlon Wright. So Marlon we go to Marlon, we explain the problem to him, and he says, well, he says, you can buy a, a, a hard card here for uh, $650 or whatever it was. And I said, we don't we don't have $650. So, so what can we do to get in to watch our kid qualify today? So he says, okay, so I'll give you a pass. So we went, we, we drove into the infield of Rockingham, and uh, we found this trailer – and, and we climbed up on top of the trailer just to see this this uh, outback steakhouse car go flying by. And I look at this my stopwatch that I had, and I and I, I leaned over to Leo, 
And I said, Leo, he says, is this a good time? And he says, see that board on the corner going down into turn three? He says, he's on the pole. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he ends up being second quick time to uh, uh, Mater, maybe. I can't remember the guy's name who got the pole, but uh, anyhow. Um, and so Benny Parsons is down there saying, I knew I'd find you here one of these days. <laughs> so he's on the pole. Uh, he was on the inside. He was on the uh, second fastest for Rockingham from Bush Grand National that race. And uh, God, there's a, there's there's an hour worth of Earnhardt stories about that race. So I'm not even going to start on that. Maybe some some additional day we'll do this. But uh, but yeah, so that's how his whole stock car career got started was that day. And then the following year was uh, Bill Davis. Uh, opportunity came to drive the Carolina Ford dealer. And that's the car you raced against, Mike. Yeah, so was- let me back up just for a second, because. We're getting off on Jeff Gordon pretty strong, but yep. you're the catalyst behind Jeff Gordon at this time. You're you're helping make things happen. I mean, I, I don't believe Jeff was out there pushing. So how do you, how did you no. make these opportunities develop? That's that's well, what intrigues me. Mostly, um, a lot of telephone calls to people to friends. So you heard me talk about Schrader. So yeah. I didn't really give uh, Larry Newber enough credit now. He's in the TV business. He was the announcer for Thursday Night Thunder, and then he left ESPN. And he was he was giving us um, opportunities. He he was calling people and, and promoting Jeff to, to okay. people that do in racing. You know, he he talked to the ARCA people. He talked to the uh, um, you know the, the guys that ran around Michigan and uh, the, the series your brother ran and so uh, 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 ASA ASA uh, ARCA uh, series all those series. ASA. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so he was trying to talk, and, and I was sort of like the information had come in, and my job was to decipher where I thought was the best place to, to go based on all the things. And we had made handshake agreements with car owners because we had run out of money to run our own car. So we were running a, a sprint car for a guy named Terry Winterbottom out of Dayton, Ohio. We were running a Silver Crown car out of Fresno, California for the Ede family, and a midget for Raleigh Hemling out of Vincennes, Indiana. And I had an asphalt sprint car. So we, we had plenty of cars and plenty of races, but we also made a commitment. These people were investing money and supporting Jeff in racing, uh, and providing cars that were very competitive for him to run the USAC and various other things. So he to go stock car racing, he couldn't just walk away and go stock car racing. We had commitments. And so we lived up to those commitments. So the 90 and all of 91, he, he finished racing for uh, people. He won the 90 uh, uh, USAC national championship he won the 1991 silver cram championship in usac and then and then that completed all of our commitments to people and so 92 was his first year to not have to race any other form of car other than his stock car from a contractual standpoint he had he had people he did favors for and he went and ran their cars once in a while when he had breaks and things like that but uh but you know from a and we had no contracts the only contract we ever had was bell davis and then on after bell davis was was rick hendrick but but in those days it was just a handshake and we lived up to our word you know we made commitment we lived up to it you know so i just it didn't dawn on me till just now that honestly jeff gordon that i know of he drove for bill davis and rick hendrick that was the only driver or owners he drove for i mean in right is that, is that right in the in yeah. the cup cup bush series yep yeah. that's pretty amazing well, he drove, right? he drove that. 
he drove those races for Hugh Connerty in 1990, but it wasn't a campaign. It was just a couple of races. Right. So let's say the car is a campaign for, we'll quote, for a championship, you know, or to run yeah. every race. He, he Man, that's, I don't yeah. know why that seems amazing to me because. Most everybody bounces around for years. Yeah, you, know, you, you got a multitude of rides and, um, you know, there's a few, of course, and uh, my older brother, Rusty, drove for Roger Penske all the time, but that's. Okay, so how did how did you get to Bill Davis? I, I know Bill, and so how did yeah. Jeff Gordon so, get to Bill Davis? So that was, uh, I think that 90% of that would have to, credit would have to go to Larry Newver. He, he identified the opportunity. He called Bill Davis, and he said, hey, Bill, he said, you know, I got this guy. He, he, he was on the out, uh, out front row at, at Rockingham last year. You guys were in that race with Mark Martin and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Here's some videotape on the kid nice kid and everything like that and uh so bill uh called me and he said hey i'd like to talk to you about yeah so he came up flew up to uh, indianapolis and he came out to a restaurant called frank and mary's a famous old indycar uh restaurant all the indycar guys used to come to this in pittsburgh indiana and they serve catfish and 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 stuff and we sat at this little country uh restaurant and um bill says uh i'd like jeff to come down and uh test test the car at Rockingham. I got a, uh, I got Sammy Swindell is going to test it and Steve Grissom is going to test it and Jeff's going to test it. It's a good year tire test. And he said, uh, I said, well, uh, we don't have any money to pay for a test. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to cost you no money or anything like that. And uh, he said, but he's come down and test. So fortunately for us, it was Rockingham and Jeff was comfortable at Rockingham and it was a challenging track, as you know, from racing there. And, and you get, you really have to be patient with the track, especially in one and two and three and four is different. And you can really have to have a good line to make good speed off of three and four. And Jeff had kind of learned that, uh, Buck Baker, maybe Randy Baker, a little bit of experience there. So, so he, he knew how to kind of get around it. And it was, I don't know about Steve Grissom, but Sammy Swindell certainly was at a, a disadvantage because he hadn't had much experience and none at that track. So at the end of that test, Bill says, I want to hire you. So Jeff says, well, just talk to my dad. So he, they fly back up to Frank and Mary's and we sit down and, and Bill says, what's it going to cost to have Jeff drive my car? And I said, well, you know, how I think 50% of whatever the car makes. And he says, well, I, I can't do that. He says, uh, uh, I said, well, you know, the car makes a hundred bucks. You only paid Jeff 50. And I said, we'll pay our own travel. We'll pay our own hotel. We'll be at the races. Um, we'll supply our own helmet. Um, you know, you, you supply the driver's uniform, uh, or if you can't, we'll, we'll do that. But I just, just, just pay us 50% of what our car makes. Car makes a hundred. We get 50 car makes a thousand. We get 500. I said, there's no, all the rest of your, any money you have, you put it into the car. He said, are you sure? He says, most guys get paid like 20000 and 10% of the car. And I said, well, I said, uh, let's just put all the money in the car and whatever the car makes, you just give us half. And uh, he says, okay. And so we wrote it down on a piece of paper. Uh, it didn't take but a half a page and shook hands. And that's how Jeff started racing in 1991 for Bell Davis. And that amazing. It's old school, bro. It is a, <laughs> old school in a fun way because, I mean, back in the day, that's what you know, shaking a hand, word of mouth, that was most of the deal. It's not yeah. these multi-page contracts. So you have, he goes, and I said this is all about you, but I got to kind of play the, you guys have great success at Bill Davis Racing. So who starts priming the wheels, and I'm assuming you're the catalyst of this. That's why, 
How do you nope. prime the wheels Absolutely. for him to go to Hendrick Motorsports? No. Nope. So you remember racing uh, 92, the first time they ever raced in Atlanta? I do. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so we get to, so we get to 92 Daytona 500, Jeff, uh, Ray Abraham's working for Alan Quickie and they about go to blows in the, in the garage area and, and uh, Ray quits. And so I see Ray and, and Ray and I are friends and, uh, and stayed in contact even after, after the, the, uh, the 1990 deal. And Ray was back racing uh, modifies up in Northeast and I'd call him and talk to him periodically and everything. He and I just kind of hit it off as friends and, and solution engineers, we both were. So, so I, I, I see him in the garage. I said, what are you going to do? And he says, Oh, you know, I don't know. He says, I guess I go back to racing New, New Jersey. And I said, well, I thought you got injured, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He said, I got to find something. And I said, well, what about coming to work for Bill Davis? Oh, Bill never hire me. He said, uh, you know, I said, well, how much money you got to have? And so he gives me this ridiculously no number in today's world. Right. And, um, so I go to Bill Davis. I said, Hey, what do you think about hiring Ray Everham? You know, he's really good. He's this, he's that, and yada, yada, yada. And Bill says, I can't afford him. And I said, well, if I can raise the money. So I call Lee Morris at Ford and I said, Lee, I said, I, I think we can get Ray Everham over at Bill Davis's. And I said, but he's, he's needs this amount of money. And I said, I can't afford it. I can do half. And Lee says, work it out. He said, I'll cover the other half. So I go to Bill and I said, Bill, I said, can you give Ray a chance? And if, and if Ray, Ray makes an improvement in the team and stuff, you pick up his salary. And if he doesn't, I'm going to cover half. And I, and I got somebody else to cover half. I didn't want to tell him Ford was going to be the other half. Uh, Cause it wasn't very much It's 25 on my part and 25 on Ford's part. So Bill says, that's a fair deal. So they go to Hickory. I don't know if you remember, it went to, it went from Daytona. Uh, they went to Hickory. So they're at Hickory and, and they end up not racing because the track tore up. They'd repaved Hickory. So the next race after Hickory was Atlanta. So they get to Atlanta and uh, Ray gets the car really fast in Atlanta. I, I don't remember if they had the pole or not, but they're really fast. So obviously Rick Hendrick is happened to be at the, uh, on a Saturday, not normal for Rick to be there on Saturday, but he's it's close by. He's there on a Saturday and Jeff's out there racing cars. So loose. It was smoke was coming off the rear tires and Rick tells the story. He says, I was going up the stairs into the suite. And he said, I see this white car out there. And he said, this kid is going to bust his ass. Who is that kid out there? And they said, I, I, I don't know. Somebody went and found out who it was in the one car. Cause, and they said, Oh, it's some Jeff Gordon kid. Don't know who he is. And, uh, well, he's going to bust his ass. I'm going to stay here for a minute. And Jeff runs out. So he runs out of gas. So they, they, he coasts in, he goes down a lap, gets his lap back, and goes on, wins the damn race. And Rick Hendricks starts pursuing uh, Jeff. Well, it happens that Bob Lutz, Jeff Gordon, and Andy Graves had bought a house together, and they're all living down by the racetrack uh, here in Charlotte. And um, and Andy Graves works for uh, Hendrick Motorsports in the uh, research and development department there with, uh, uh, I can't remember his name now, but anyhow. And so Rick, Rick finds out that, that Andy lives with Jeff and he goes to Andy says, Andy says, I, I need to talk to Jeff. Does he have a contract? And so Andy calls me and he says, Hey, Rick Hendrick wants to talk to Jeff. Does he have a contract? I said, well, you know, he's got a contract, but it's like all contracts. There's a exit clause in their contract and it happens to be an exit on Jeff's part or on Bill Davis's part. So Bill doesn't want Jeff. He notifies Jeff by a certain date. If Jeff doesn't want to be there, he notifies Bill. And, uh, Okay, fine. So 
I get a call from Rick and Rick says, Hey, I'd really like to talk to Jeff. I said, Oh, okay. Well, let me, let me see if I can get Jeff to come by and see you. So I called Jeff and Jeff says, there's no way Rick Henry is not interested in me. And, and the previous year we had, we had actually run a car for, um, for Cale Yarborough, uh, just tested it and it made Bill really pissed off and everything like that. So we weren't, so Jeff was real sensitive about not talking to any, any cup owners or anything like that. And, and so he says, no, no, I said, I, he says, he's, he doesn't want me. He doesn't want me. That's just Andy talking. So uh, two weeks went by. I get another call from Jimmy Johnson, who was the general manager of Hendrick Motorsports. He said, hey, Rick really wants to talk to Jeff. Why won't he talk to him? I said, I, I you know, he just doesn't believe it's real, you know. And uh, he said, well, you, I talked to him in his office down at it's, the address of 600 Monroe. But anyhow, I said, all right, let me see what I can do. So I called Jeff. And I said, look, I said, go with Andy. Go down there after work when it's dark so nobody knows you're going and go down and and just go talk to rick so that's how it all happened so andy took and jeff went down there and jeff called me on his way back oh my god this guy is the greatest guy in the world and you know and all this well you know rick so anyhow that's what all happened but I, yeah i didn't have really anything to do with it other than trying to persuade jeff into going and then and then uh and then of course when it came to the contract negotiation which there wasn't any negotiation when Rick Hendrick hires you. You just yes. signed it. You knew you weren't on tap for, <laughs> yes, sir. Right, yeah. for Abraham's contract. That's a pretty good deal, though, man. Rick Hendrick yeah. was, so, was so impressed, it was, it was clearly. A little, bit, a little bit of negotiation. I really yeah. wanted I really wanted to stay, Ray to stay. And so Jimmy, Jimmy wasn't buying into that. Rick calls me and he says, why do you want Ray? I explained my theory of how long it takes a crew chief and the driver to get coordinated and balanced and speak in the same terms. And I told Rick, I felt it would save him a tremendous amount of money and, and get the team up to speed faster and everything. And he said, if that's what it takes. That's what it takes. That's I'm fine with it. So, so they hired Ray and it was Ray and, and Jeff and then Ray brought in his people and pretty much everything is all documented on video and, yeah. TV they had a pretty good amount of success. Yeah. Well, John, <laughs> yeah. you know, as much as I hate to say this, we, we have surpassed our time. And I'm, I'm going to ask you to put under your consideration and coming back and talking more because I can tell there's a whole there's a whole lot of you that I want to hear more about. You know, we've <laughs> caught a little Jeff Gordon, but I still want to hear the John Bickford after Jeff Gordon's at there's another chapter or well, there's, two. There, there's you know? so many things that I, I've heard you've done and you're involved with that I'd love for our ourselves and our fans to hear about. So uh, open yeah, invite. Can... and um, We'll get you back on the show. Yes, I'd appreciate it if you'd consider that. But in the meantime, thank you so much for sharing up to Hendrick Motorsports. Fun. It's fun. <laughs> See how the time flies by? When you're on the yeah, Mike Wallace absolutely. podcast, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. There goes John Bickford. And you've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, powered by My Race Pass and NASCAR Digital Media.